chance to be here. Just uh, pray for each home represented here. Pray that our homes are a place that represent you. Father, um, give us strength for more we um, Give us your way to see things. Give us wisdom. Give us peace. Give us joy. Father, just help us with uh, just living life to your glory in your life. Do this tonight as we study the book of John. And uh, as we do it as it leads us. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as I just said a few minutes ago, uh, only one chapter to read tonight. We're in uh, the seventh lesson, but chapter 11 of John's gospel. And um, before we get into the discussion questions tonight, let's just go through the verses that we're going to be reading. Make sure we have a volunteer to read each of the sections that I have outlined. Um, I'll take the first nine verses of John 11. Can I get a volunteer after I'm done reading those verses to read verses 10 to 18? All right, Martina will take that. And then uh, after Martina reads verses 10 to 18, can I get a volunteer to read verses 19 to 27? I got that. All right. And then uh, after Cash, who would be willing to read verses 28 to 36? What a Greg? What uh, John 11. Okay. Yeah. You want to take 37 to 45, Nick? All right, and then to round us off, verses 46 to 54. 46 to 54. All right, Phoenix is going to round us off. Yeah, so just nine verses, a person who's volunteering to read, not a too terribly big chunk of Scripture compared to what we had to read the last couple of weeks. But let me read the first nine verses, and then uh, Martina will go after me, and then those who are after her in the reading order, just feel free to pick up right when... They finish reading their set of verses. So John 11, beginning in verse 1. Again, this is chapter 7 or lesson 7 in the workbook, The Resurrection and the Life. So let's see how we find that theme contained in John 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he had heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, Jesus said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps. Then the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sake that I wasn't there, that you may believe, nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been here two or four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the woman around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brothers. 
heard that Jesus was coming and went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming to the world. And when she had said, had said so said, she went her way and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The Master's come and called for thee. As soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came in to him. Now Jesus would not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house, comforted her when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, calling her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he was groaning in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man, who opened the eyes of the blind man, have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against him. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time will be a stench, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Do not I say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. So they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know, I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him, and let it go. Therefore, man, the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. And the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many times. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation. And one of them, Sayyidus, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all.
All right. Well, thank you to everyone who participated in our group reading of John 11. 54 verses is a lot easier to read in one sitting than 195, which is what we did last week. So I'm really grateful for you all sticking with us there as we read the Word of God together. Um, Just by way of introduction, I want to throw a question out there and hopefully get some uh, group feedback. At least feel free to share your opinion uh, regarding the question that I have um, to get us started what is something that you think is most feared by humanity? If you, if you had to pinpoint something that at the big picture level, the vast majority of human beings fear this, what would you say would be that fear? Probably death. That's it. Yep. Right? Yeah. And, and uh, based on the first question that we have right at the beginning of chapter 7 or section 7 in your workbooks, the, the question gets right to the heart of that fear. What, if any, fears or distresses about death does the world have? I, I slightly modified the question to make it applicable to um, humanity as a whole because I think this is something that really is foundational to the human experience in this world. Something that virtually all human beings can relate to at some point in their life, whether it be in the past or whether it be in the present. Every person at one point in their life will have a fear of death to some extent or another. Why do you think that is? Where does the fear of death come from? It's unknown. Fear of the unknown, right? I mean, if, if you're a person who, who hasn't trusted in Jesus Christ, you can have all kinds of different misconceptions and beliefs about the afterlife or if there even is an afterlife. So just general fear of the unknown. Nobody here has ever died before, right? So it's not like we have past experience that we can draw from in order to generate uh, some idea of what death is going to be like, um, especially if you don't have a biblical foundation to build your life and your beliefs on. What are some other reasons why death would be feared by humanity in general? Yeah. Fear of the consequences of your death for your loved ones. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Any other thoughts on why humanity might fear death? What about just the dying process, right? Like, how many of you guys wonder, how am I going to die? Because if Christ doesn't return during our lifetime, we're all going to die at some point. I know I have. Is it going to be a car accident, cancer, old age? Whatever, right? There there can be any number of outcomes that leads to death, but we're all going to the same place barring the return of Christ during our lifetime. Uh, Another thing that I wrote down as to why humanity might fear death, and this kind of gets to what Nick taught. I guess it's been close to a year now because 
He's been in Romans preaching on Sunday mornings for uh, just over a year now. Romans 1, 18 and following, um, it talks about how sinful man suppresses the truth they know about God in creation and in their conscience. They suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And I look at passages like that in the Bible and I think maybe part of the reason why humanity as a whole has a fear of death is because they know what awaits them outside of Christ at their death. That they know there's a God, they know they're accountable to God, and yet if they don't know God through faith in Jesus Christ, they recognize that when they stand before God, they're in trouble, right? And that's scary to think about. It's easier to not think about. It's easier to suppress that truth. It's easier just to pretend that it doesn't exist than to actually have to come to grips with the fact that we're accountable to a holy God. Um, so those are just some, some thoughts that I wanted to throw your way before we really get into the weeds of this chapter because this chapter really highlights two realities. First reality, I would say, that's highlighted in this chapter is the reality of death. I mean, death is a hard, tragic reality of this fallen world. Because of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden, all human beings, except for um, Enoch and Elijah, up to this point in human history that we know of, have experienced death. There's only been two that haven't in, in terms of what's been recorded to us in Scripture. Enoch and Elijah are the only two people who've ever been able to escape death. Okay, So death, it, it, it's a reality in a fallen world. That's, I think, uh, truth number one that we see clearly in John 11. Truth number two, though, and, and this gets us to the gospel, is that in Christ, there's no fear in death. I mean, yes, there, there is the unknown of how am I going to die? Is it going to be painful? Is it going to be dreadful? Is it going to cause my family difficulty? Those are, those are genuine concerns we might have. But in terms of where we're going to be after we die, what's the outcome or the end result of death? This chapter shows us that through faith in Jesus Christ, we have no need to fear the end product of our earthly death. Um, why do you think, second question on page 67, why do you think Jesus helps um, put those fears to ease. What did you? What stood out? Think about just this chapter. Don't don't get too lost um, in, in the big scope of scripture and uh, trying to answer this question. What did you see in John eleven specifically that would give you reason to believe that through faith in Christ we don't have to fear the outcome or the end result of death? What did you see in the text? He's the resurrection and the life, right? We're going to talk more about... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, y'all don't have to be shy. I mean, the pastor, obviously, I'm, I'm leading the lesson, and the pastor, he, he's going to know probably every question that I, that I throw out of here from our workbook. So uh, don't, don't be shy. And, and hey, listen, um, I want to hear from all of you guys, and, and this is how we sharpen one another and encourage one another through sharing our, our insights and our perspectives on the Word of God. So please just... If it wasn't the resurrection, the life, if that wasn't your answer, feel free to share what your answer was or just say, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So so through a relationship with God, through faith in Christ, we have that. We have that communion with God through prayer, which builds our, our intimacy with God. It, it helps us to have an experiential realization that God is for me. He's with me. I don't have to fear wherever he leads me in this life. 
or however he orchestrates the events surrounding my death. That's good, Martina. I appreciate that, that thought. But those are just some introductory questions here in our workbook in this chapter to get us going and our, our thought about John 11. And now let's begin to look at the context of this chapter before we get into the rest of the discussion questions. Bottom of page 67, the context section, as we've seen in all the previous chapters, there's a few paragraphs here that give us the 30,000-foot flyover of what's happening in the narrative. What is going on in this section of the Gospel of John? Can I get a volunteer to read that first paragraph under the context heading on page 67? And then I'll read the rest of page 67. Um, there's a few scripture references, too. I'll read those scripture references as well. So uh, first paragraph, bottom of page 67, underneath the context heading. Who would be willing to read that for us? All right. Thank you, brother. At the beginning of chapter 11, we find Jesus standing in the shadow of the cross. His little time in the area went beyond the Jordan had ended. John picked up the story after Jesus moved back into the area of Jerusalem with his death on the cross only a few days ago. Perfect. So, again, we're getting closer now to... Um, Christ's crucifixion, which is really pictured in chapters really 13 to the end of the book of John, uh, chapters 13 through chapter 21. That's the, the Passion Week. That, that is Christ's final week dramatically and in great detail put forth to us as the readers to see all the events leading up to when Jesus would be crucified, of course, when Jesus would be raised from the dead. Now, um, in building off of that context, um, I'm going to pick up where Linus left off. In those last few days before his death, the scene changes from hatred and rejection, as we saw back in chapter 10, verse 39, to an unmistakable and blessed witness of the glory of Christ. Now, John 10, 39, remember, this is after Jesus. He, he's just once again called out the Jewish religious leaders. He's contrasted them as false shepherds over the people of Israel represented as sheep. He's contrasted them, those false shepherds, those hired hands, with him, with himself, Jesus, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, the true shepherd, uh, the one who lays his life down for the sheep, for, or if we could put it this way, the one who lays his life down for all those who would ever believe, whether it be those in the nation of Israel or those of us who are of Gentile descent. He says, after, John says, after all of that took place, the Jews were seeking again to seize him. They were seeking again to put him to death, okay? So that they are at their wit's end with the teachings and the confrontations that Christ has put forward throughout Israel. And MacArthur continues in the context. He says, All the rejection and hatred of the Jews could not dim Christ's glory as displayed through the resurrection of Lazarus. This miracle is the climactic and most dramatic sign in the Gospel of John and is the capstone of Jesus' public ministry. Let me stop right there. Why do you think this would be considered the most dramatic sign in the Gospel of John and the capstone of Jesus' public ministry? Why this narrative? Why would this be the apex or the center of the Gospel of John? What was so profound about what happened in this chapter that we just read together? You have something to say, Phoenix? Uh, no? Okay. Uh, yeah, what, what miracle did we see? Uh, the evidence of uh, you know, bringing uh, life to the dead. 
Yeah, the resurrection of Lazarus, right? Like this was something that had never been seen before. Like this was something unheard of. I mean, how many of you guys have ever seen somebody get resurrected from the dead? I certainly haven't. And, and, and it wasn't just that he had just passed away. It had been days. Like his body was literally starting to decay. And this was an incredible sign attesting to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. And um, as MacArthur notes at the very bottom of page 67, in light of this miracle being the most dramatic sign of the Gospel of John and the capstone of Jesus' public ministry, he says that that miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead evidences Christ's glory in at least three ways. Number one, it pointed to his deity, showed that he was the Son of God. Two, it strengthened the faith of his disciples. Those who were following Christ up to that point had absolute confidence. If they lacked it before, after seeing him raise Lazarus from the dead, they had absolute confidence that he was everything he claimed to be, the Messiah and the Son of God. And then number three, it led directly to the cross. John chapter 12, verse 23, as you see it referenced there at the bottom of page 67 in your workbooks. John 12 and verse 23 said that the hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, this happened directly before the events leading up to his crucifixion in that final week of Christ's life, the Passion Week. And MacArthur concludes the context by saying, As we read about this amazing miracle and the reactions to it, ask God to help you understand more deeply the truth spoken by Jesus. That's my prayer for tonight, my friends, that we would be further enamored by the glory of Christ as we consider his power on display in this miracle of resurrecting Lazarus from the grave. It's a picture of the resurrection that Christ would experience at the end of the Gospel of John that John records here uh, in just a few chapters. It's a picture of the spiritual resurrection that you and I have experienced if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And through faith in Christ, working with the grace of God, you have been resurrected to new life in him. So this is a picture of your spiritual resurrection as a believer. And someday, 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 19 through 22, someday you and I are going to have a resurrected body just like Christ. And just like Lazarus being resurrected, we will ourselves have a bodily resurrection. And as God's people, we will reside in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever. So there's a lot of of, um, immediate contextual observations that we can make about why this is a significant miracle. But really against the bigger backdrop of the entirety of Scripture, we see that this has incredible significance for what we ourselves are going to experience in the future. And spiritually speaking, it has significance for what we ourselves have already encountered as a believer. If you're in Christ tonight, you've already encountered a spiritual resurrection at the moment you came to faith in Christ. Now, keys to the text, top of page 68 in our workbooks. Um, There's two keys to the text that MacArthur notes for us. The first key to the text is um, the identity of Mary and Martha. So in this section of our workbook, chapter 7 or section 7, MacArthur notes Mary and Martha as key figures or key um, actors, if you will, in this narrative. And he also mentions Caiaphas as a key actor or a key figure in this narrative. So somebody read the paragraph about Mary and Martha, then I'll take the paragraph about Caiaphas. Who'd be willing to read that paragraph about Mary and Martha? Thank you, uh, Martina. Take that away for us, please. Mary and Martha, this is the first mention of his family in John. Clearly, they were good friends of Jesus and stayed with him several 
Very good. So, um, and this, what MacArthur notes here in this key to the text, I want to make an application to just how we go about studying the Bible in our personal times. Uh, MacArthur notes in John's gospel, this is the first time we hear of Mary and Martha. But in the life of Christ, this was not the first time that Jesus had encountered Mary and Martha. There's evidence in the text that Jesus had a prior relationship with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then in Luke 10, 38 to 42, um, we find an account of Martha and Mary uh, interacting with Jesus at an earlier point in his earthly ministry. We're going to read in our next lesson in John 12 and following that um, Mary anointed the feet of Jesus as a way of some, uh, symbolically portraying his burial that was to come after his crucifixion. So Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they had a close relationship with Jesus. And the way that I want to make application to our personal Bible studies is this. If you ever find a detail in a passage that you're studying, that you've never encountered before or it hasn't uh, been a detail up to that point in the book of the Bible you're studying, go to other parts of the Bible. See how other parts of Scripture can bring clarity to that part that you're reading in the Bible. Uh, Bible teachers, theologians historically have described that as interpreting Scripture with Scripture. So anytime you're in one part of the Bible, you can have clarity on that part of the Bible by seeing what all of Scripture has to say in relation to a particular character or a particular doctrine or a particular event. So that's just something to keep in mind as you engage in your own private Bible studies um, as well. So uh, I'll read the second key to the text, the third actor or figure that MacArthur notes as central to our understanding of John 11, Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest, and the high priest uh, in those days was the supreme religious head of his people, distinguished from his fellow priests by the clothes he wore, the duties he performed, and the particular requirements that were placed upon him. Caiaphas served as high priest from A.D. 18 to 36, an unusually long tenure for anyone in that role. His longevity suggests he had a close relationship with both Rome and the Herodian dynasty. So he was, he was close to, that's a way of saying he was close to the Roman emperors and, and the Roman officials and the legal realm. He's also close to the Jews. This is a guy who had friends, uh, uh, if I could say it like this, um, the enemy of his enemy was his friend. He had mutual friends of people who literally hated one another. The Jews and the Romans could not stand one another. This guy was friends with all of them. So what MacArthur's noting is the reason he was able to serve so long as high priest is because he was able to manipulate circumstances and relationships to enable him to keep his position of power. Um, continuing, though, um, Caiaphas, he was the son-in-law to his predecessor, Annas, and he controlled the temple, no doubt personally profiting from the corrupt merchandising that was taking place there. His enmity against Jesus seems intensely personal and especially malevolent. Every time he appears in Scripture, he is seeking Jesus' destruction. So this is not a guy who um, is friendly by any means to Christ or to his cause that he's putting forward in his earthly ministry. Um, he would not be friendly to the cause of the church in the years following Christ's uh, death and resurrection and ascension. Um, but Caiaphas, as we're going to see later on in our study tonight, he plays a very ironic role 
in this chapter. We're going to see a very vivid um, picture of irony as we get to the later part of John 11. So keep your mind attuned to Caiaphas. Keep him in the back of your mind because he's going to play a pretty uh, remarkable role in what unfolds here in chapter 11. But with that in mind, we've, we've looked at the context and the keys to the text of John 11. Flip over to page 72 now in your workbooks, and let's get into uh, some more discussion questions. Page 72 and question one, right there at the top of page 72. The question says, what evidence in chapter 11 leads you to believe that Jesus had an especially close relationship with Lazarus and his sisters? Okay, so um, as I've said in several lessons that we've had up to this point in our study of John's gospel, one of the most important aspects of studying the Bible is just making observation, looking at key details in a passage that can help bring the text to greater clarity in your mind. So let's make a few observations from John 11. I mentioned just moments ago as well that there's evidence in this text um, that Lazarus, Martha, and Mary had a prior relationship with Jesus. Where do we find hints of that? In John 11. What verses? Just start. Verse 5, verse 11. Uh, I have both of those. You know the way to house. Yeah. I mean, that. Huh. Well, nowadays we can. That, that can mean something, something bad if they know the way to their house. <laughs> that was supposed to be a joke to get you all laughing. It's a tough crowd tonight. Yeah. Nick laughed. So, yeah. Uh, verse 5, right? Jesus says. That it's or John rather writing about Jesus says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. So that's an observation. Uh, Nick mentioned verse eleven. Lazarus is called a friend to Jesus and the disciples. So Lazarus is not only close to Jesus; he's close to his disciples as well. Um, he he knew the way to Lazarus's house, right? Jesus knew the way to Lazarus's house. That indicates that they had a prior relationship. Um, Verse 28, she refers to him as the teacher. The, yeah, not just a teacher, the teacher. Like, Teachers like, here calling for you. Right. You know? Yeah, he, he, this, this man, Jesus, he is the, the teacher par excellence. He's the highest teacher conceivable. Um, yeah, so these are all some good te- uh, evidences. I, I wrote just in my own book, um, Verse 2, Mary uh, anointed Christ with fragrant oil. We're going to see that next week, Lord willing, in our study of John 12 and following. Um, Lazarus is referred to as um, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, here's a, here's a trivia question. Who else in the Gospel of John is referred to as the one whom Jesus loved? John, John right? So the, the writer of this Gospel This is a testimony to his humility. He wouldn't even put his own name in the gospel record. He just referred to himself as the one to whom Jesus loved. And really, I mean, I think that's a greater title than any name we could ever have, right? So yeah, Jesus loves me. That is is the top privilege and honor that any human being can have. Um, So yeah, uh, good good job, Cash, answering that trivia question. Um, Of course, verses 21, 27... Um, You can highlight those uh, to read again later on if you'd like. Martha professes faith in Christ's ability to save Lazarus from death. 
So unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees who attributed Christ's supernatural power to Satan, Martha and Mary attributed Christ's supernatural power to God because he was God in human flesh, right? And then, of course, verse 32, we also see Mary's profession of faith in Christ's ability to save Lazarus from death. So those are some evidences that these folks had a close relationship with one another. Now, question two. Why do you think the text describes Jesus as groaning in his spirit, weeping and being troubled over the death of Lazarus, especially if Jesus knew that he was going to bring Lazarus back to life? How many of you guys, this might appeal more to some of our older uh, members in the audience tonight, but how many of you guys have heard it, and, and I'm, preaching to, or I'm speaking to Baptists here, grew up in a Baptist church or maybe in a non-denominational church that had Baptist leanings, and, the, and they would... Uh, they would preach this passage, they'd preach John 11, and you'd hear comments like this. Jesus was crying because he knew that he was going to pull Lazarus back from heaven, and, and he just broke his heart. Yep, I knew he would have heard it, maybe some of y'all have heard that. I heard that growing up, I mean, I'm only 27, so I, I'm older than some of you guys here, but I'm not too terribly old, but that was preached all the time growing up. This was the go-to passage had to, so wonderful. Yep. That's why. That's how heaven is. Even God cries when he has to pull somebody out of it. Yep. Trivia question. What's the shortest verse in all of Scripture? Very right. Jesus wept, right? So we read the shortest verse in all of Scripture. So you can go home and, and tell your, um, your family or tell your friends, say, hey, I read the shortest verse in all of Scripture. How about that? I don't know if any one of you guys will ever actually do that, but you can do that if you so desire. Um, but why? I mean, think about this. Why, is, why do we think that Jesus was so distressed when he came to the tomb and, and Lazarus was dead? He's been dead now for several days. Obviously, he knew he was going to be pulling his soul out of heaven. He, he knew that. And I mean, obviously, that would, have, that would have bothered him. But let's look at the context here. Go to verses 33 and 38. Verses 33 and 38. And if you have a workbook, which I trust that everyone in here does, um, this is what's fascinating about doing some of these studies. MacArthur sometimes gives us the answer to the question in his commentary. Um, left side of page 70 and uh, 33 and 38 are also on page 70 as well. I'm going to read verses 33 and 38. It says, verse 33, When Jesus saw her weeping... Speaking about um, Mary in verse 32. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And then verse 38. Jesus again groaning in himself came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Now, um, how many of you guys know how funerals were conducted during the first century world? I know that's a random question, another kind of trivia question to ask. Anyone have any familiarity with how funerals were conducted back in those days? Well, not, not, necess not necessarily. Uh, in fact, it, it was, I thought it was kind of humorous in the sense that, not that someone had died, but in the sense that like funerals was an opportunity to try to create the biggest ruckus for the person who passed away. So much so that you would have, you'd have your, your family and your friends there at the funeral, of course, but you'd have people who were paid to show up 
and make a big public scene of how sad they were that the individual had passed away. They might not have had a relationship to the person who passed away, but they would show up and they would be professional mourners. And the more wealthy a person or a family was, the more of these professionals that would be present to mourn the person who'd passed away. And MacArthur notes here that the Greek term that's used, in light of that historical context, MacArthur notes that the Greek term for groaned always suggests outrage or emotional indignation. Most likely, Jesus was angered at the grief of the people in that it revealed their deep unbelief. They were grieving as pagans without hope. So the people at this funeral, who are funeral for lack of a better term, the people who are mourning Lazarus's death, okay, they're making a big uproar. They're making a big show about how he had passed away. And I'm sure Lazarus was a great man. I'm sure it was heartbreaking that he passed away. But they were, they were grieving as though Lazarus is dead and, you know, there, there is no, there's no hope. There, there's no life after death. There's no reason to celebrate the fact that he's a believer. They were acting as though life on this earth is all that there is. And that takes us full circle back to our opening questions that we consider. How many of you guys, whether on TV or if you have families, friends, coworkers, whoever, how many of you guys have heard somebody make the claim, you got to live life to the fullest because that's all there is in this life. That's all there is. There's this life and nothing else. You've heard that one before. Somebody in your life has said that or you've heard it on TV, social media, whatever the case may be. Um, if that's your worldview, if that is your belief system, you have every right to weep, to weep like that, to, to, to grieve like that. Because if this is all that there is, then it is tragic that that person passed away. There is no life after death. There is no hope. But we know from Scripture that it's not the case. We know from God's self-revelation that it's not the case that when a person dies, that there is no life after death and that there is no hope for that individual. Because if they are a believer, they immediately go into the presence of of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, to be absent. Wait, 5, 7. I don't know if that's the exact verse. Let me, don't, don't make me butcher that. Let me look it up for you. I think it's 5, 7. It might be 5, 8. Because I know in that realm there's a, a verse that says we walk by faith, not by sight. Yeah, verse 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Verse 8. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So to be, verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body, to pass away, to experience earthly death, that is to allow the believer to be at home with the Lord. So if you are in Christ, that statement he makes about being the resurrection and the life, that has a special and comforting application to you. Because you are with the one who is absolutely sovereign and absolutely in control over every detail of your life and over every detail of the life that is to come. So I hope that's an encouragement for you um, and, and a reminder to us that when we lose a loved one, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to weep. But don't do so as one who is without hope because we do have hope as believers. We know that if they were in Christ... We will see them again someday in God's kingdom. And they, right now, as real as you and I are here with one another, 
it's equally as real that they are with their Lord and Savior in glory. So question three, any, any questions or comments on that before we move on? Go for it, Nick. Why Jesus went? Why, why, why Jesus cried? Mm-hmm. My, my conviction, and keep it with MacArthur, is, is he... Oh, okay. See if they answer. I thought I gave them the answer already because I didn't get a whole lot of comments on that. That's part of it. Yeah, yeah. They, they, a lot of them didn't take him seriously. There were unbelievers there. There were people who uh, would go and report this to the Pharisees to try to get them to to put him in prison and uh, ultimately to put him to death. So yeah, part of it. Part of the reason why. What do you think? Jesus wept because he, for twofold, for starters, the, the primary answer, the main answer is that he wept because the people who were there were grieving as those without hope. So he, he, he grieved and mourned for their unbelief and for their, their, their faulty perspective on reality, uh, both reality as it is in this life and reality as it is in life to come. And I would say secondly, secondary to that, and, and this is kind of a, a necessary entailment of that. Jesus wept because he has compassion for sinners like you and me, and he recognizes that you know, these people are just so mistaken in their thought that they, they need a complete worldview makeover. They need a complete change of thinking. So he had compassion for these people who, who just – they didn't have a proper understanding of this life and the life to come. Nobody totally – nobody got it. That is my hope. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. Anyway. I mean, it's like when he weeps over Jerusalem. Like the, the whole the whole town had seen miracle after miracle after miracle. They heard his teaching, and they're about to put him to death by crucifixion. They're about to hand him over to the Romans and have him crucified. And Jesus is compassionate, and he he weeps for them for what they're about to do. So and that just goes to show. How great of a savior Christ is, that, that he has mercy and compassion and sorrow for, for even, even his own enemies, right? Um, which Romans, um, Romans 5, 8, while we were enemies, Christ died for us, right? Christ gives his life for his own enemies so that they might become his people. They might become his sons and daughters through faith. Uh, question three, though, um, and this, this really kind of highlights what we just talked about regarding Christ's compassion. What do you learn about Jesus's humanity from this passage? And what about his divinity? So how do we see Jesus as a man in this passage, as truly man? And how do we see Jesus in this passage as truly God? Right? Because as, as Christians, we believe Jesus is one person, right? He's one person, but he has a human nature and a divine nature, right? So how do we see both natures reflected in John 11? What are some verses that stood out to you? Well, we, we definitely see divinity in his power to resurrect life. Yeah, I mean, that, that's just, that's a given, right? I mean, like, only God can do that. He, uh, he showed emotion. I mean, he was grieved. Yep. He was bothered. He cried. Right? That's right. He so. Those are the, the yeah. Those are the main ones right there. Um, he, he's God. His power over over the the natural realm. He's able to raise a dead man from 
the grave, and then his humanity. He has a genuine sorrow and compassion for those who were present at that scene of Lazarus in the tomb, many of whom I would say either had a hand in putting him to death by crucifixion or just would never come to faith. I mean, that, that's just, that's what's heartbreaking. The vast majority of Jews who live in Jesus' time would not believe in him, right? We just saw back in John 6, he had a huge following. He starts preaching hard truth. The vast majority of them bolt and they say, you know, the miracles are great, but we don't like what you say. We don't like how you hold us accountable to be subject to your lordship. We don't want anything to do with you. We're out. Um, and, and we've seen that for the past 2,000 years. Many people are fascinated with Jesus, think he was a good moral or religious figure. Uh, they think he had a significant influence on history. Some people even devote their whole life to studying the Bible as a mere academic exercise. But they don't truly come to love Christ and trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. Um, it's absolutely heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. But that's the same thing you see today. You yeah. Know, you saw back then. Exactly. No, you're exactly right. Um, I mean, I, I think of, I'll give you a perfect example of how this is tragic. I, I saw this happen, I guess it's been three or four years now. Um, there's a guy who was a professor at the school that I went to, did my undergrad and my first master's degree there. Uh, his name was Dr. Bill Schlegel. And Dr. Schlegel, he oversaw a program called IBEX, which took, they take groups of students at the master's university over to Israel, and they, they do tours of Israel. Um, they get to study the culture over there. They get to see all um, of the key places where biblical events transpired. And uh, Schlegel was a, he was a genius. He, he was a genius when it came to Hebrew. He knew all the archaeology of, of the ancient Near East and everything that um, correlated to biblical history over there in Israel. Um, just a remarkable, remarkable man. Wrote books about, uh, about um, the, the uh, geography of Israel. Um, contributed to study Bibles and, and, um, and, and uh, academic journals that studied the ancient Near East and studied the life of Christ over there in Israel. And then about three or four years ago, he comes out and just recants his profession of faith completely recants it, says, nope, I don't believe Jesus was the Son of God. I don't believe he was the Messiah. I don't think any of this is true. And now he's part of some cult over in Israel as we speak right now who denies Jesus as the Messiah, denies that God is Trinitarian. Um, and of course, as we know from passages, 1 John two nineteen, those who went out from us were not of us. John 10, as we read uh, and learned about last week, Jesus... Um, he keeps his own. Actually, I'm thinking of John 6, 37 to 40. Jesus keeps his own, um, will not allow any in his hand to perish or to fall away. So for all intents and purposes, barring repentance, Bill Schlegel studied scripture academically, wrote books, could tell you everything there is to know about the ancient Near East and the life of Jesus. He was never saved but he, but he knew all of that in his head. He had all the head knowledge. He was, he was at Masters. He was at Masters. Yeah. He was at one of the finest Christian institutions in the world for decades playing the game. Wasn't a Christian. 
Like those people back there in the first century. I mean, they could have told you everything about the miracles of Christ. They could have told you everything about what he did who he, or, or how he taught. Um, they knew people who walked with him. They knew his family. They, they knew all this stuff. They even saw it. And they didn't believe. I mean, it's, to, to Greg's point, I mean, it, it truly is heartbreaking to see how, as, and, and back to what Nick said earlier, you can have Christ literally right there in the first century, flat out rejected. In our day, you can have all the knowledge in the world, play the game for decades, and just not have anything to do with it. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Now back to Caiaphas, though. Um, I told you to keep him in the back of your mind. Question four, as the Jews, excuse me, as the Pharisees, um, Jewish religious leaders, plotted to kill Jesus, Caiaphas made what unwitting, profound remark in verse 50? And how was this prophetic? So really, verses 46 to 52 of John 11 give us, they give us the, the fuller picture of what's happening here. But verses 49 and 50 are, are really, it's, it's all one thought, so I combine verse 49 and 50. That gets to the heart of what our question is after. Somebody read verses 49 and 50 for us again, please. Very good. So remember, the, the Jews, particularly the Jewish religious leaders, they're terrified that the Romans are going to try to take over their country because there's going to be an uproar about Jesus as the Messiah. Um, the Romans are going to feel threatened. They're going to come in there. They're going to plunder Israel. And then the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, they're going to lose all their power and all their authority that they enjoyed over the nation of Israel that's all things going on in their thinking at this point. Sorry. Um, kind of paint a picture there a little bit. So like Rome is the power. Okay, they're they're the federal government. Right. So right. Israel's the state. And if there's that chaos, you then Rome comes in and says, Hey, we gotta straighten all this out. That's a perfect an- analogy, perfect illustration, absolutely. Yeah. Right? So so Israel, particularly the religious leaders who had um, the, the primary authority in that, that state, if you will, they don't want Big Brother coming in there, taking over, getting rid of their power and influence. they got to get rid of this guy who's causing all the uproar. And to top it off, this same guy, Jesus, he's called them out time and time again for their hypocrisy and for their corruption. So they don't like him to begin with for that fact. And then secondly... They have even greater desire to get rid of him because they don't want to lose their power. They don't want to lose their influence, right? Now, what is Caiaphas saying? How is this ironic? How is it ironic? First off, um, does, does everybody in here know what ironic or irony is? Okay, let me give you, just so I don't butcher this, let me give you the Webster's Dictionary definition of irony. So we all have a third-party opinion here, and then you can be the judge of whether or not this was ironic with what Caiaphas said. So irony, a state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects 
and is often amusing as a result. So something that's contrary to what is expected and that outcome that was contrary to what was expected, it's amusing. Okay? Now what does Caiaphas say? It's expedient. It's valuable. It's, um, it satisfies our purposes that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Okay, how, how is that an ironic statement? What is it that Jesus would do on the cross? Funny enough, that is exactly what happens. And just like I said, there's, ch- there's a good chance that most people who saw Jesus' life and ministry, they rejected Christ as the Messiah and the Son of God. Conversely, we do know there were people who did accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They did believe He was the Messiah and Son of God, some of whom were Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. Nicodemus, we know from the Gospel of John, would come to saving faith in Christ. He was a Pharisee. Paul, who was one of the greatest persecutors of the church, he comes to faith in Jesus Christ. He was a Pharisee. Now, of course, he was a young man when all this is taking place. But we do know... Through the gospel, through the testimony of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, people in the first century who were Jews, who were even religious leaders, they would come to faith. And Caiaphas makes this statement here to his contemporaries. Somehow it gets back to John who wrote this gospel. So that tells me that people who were with him in leadership over the nation of Israel, someone who heard that took note of that and reported back to John at some point when he's gathering data here and writing his gospel, interviewing people, going over things that had been written down about what Jesus had said or what he had done. So I see this as evidence that Caiaphas, ironically enough, he's prophesying exactly what Jesus would do in his death. He's prophesying the benefit that would come about from Jesus' death, that people would not perish in their sins, that they would have everlasting life through faith in him. And ironically enough, there's chances that Caiaphas is speaking this to people who at the time 100% agreed with him, and then later on their eyes would be opened and they would come to saving faith. So I think there's multiple layers here of irony that we see unfolding with the prophecy of Caiaphas. And in case we missed it, notice what John writes in the verses that follow. Verse 51, now this Caiaphas, he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. What's John saying? Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus' death would be effective to save both Jews and Gentiles. And note this, he did not say this on his own authority. How, what led him to make that statement? Even the Holy Spirit, my friends, is powerful enough to cause a wicked man to say a true prophecy about the future. In the case here, we see it with Caiaphas. Like, like God, here's another layer to add to that irony that we're talking about. God used a wicked man. We have no evidence he ever came to faith in Christ, but he used a wicked man to prophesy what Jesus would do. Probably a week or so later from the time 
that we're reading of these events here in the Gospel of John. And in terms of its beneficial application, he's speaking to people who would eventually come to faith themselves at some point in the future. Pretty remarkable stuff. Um, Don't know if y'all ever considered that before or uh, had noticed that before if you've read through the Gospel of John. This goes to show you the riches not only of John's Gospel, but I think the, the riches of God's wisdom. Like God is so wise that he can orchestrate an event such as this, that a wicked man could prophesy exactly how Jesus would die and exactly what benefits would come about through Jesus' death. So just some, some food for thought there. Okay. Well, uh, going deeper, bottom of page 72, it says, Go back and read John three sixteen to 21, reviewing the statements and promises that Jesus made. Compare it to what you've discovered here in John 11. And that ties into to question five. So I'm going to read John three sixteen to 21. And as I do so, I want you to consider this question. Verse, uh, question five, page 73. What added insights into the doctrine of the resurrection do you gain from the passage in John 3? So this is kind of a tricky question. Um, but I, I want to see if you guys have some insights as we consider it against the backdrop of John three sixteen to 21. So let me read that out loud for us here. John three sixteen and following. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in Christ is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Okay. So kind of a tricky question against the backdrop of those verses. So let me try to kind of, I'm going to try to get you guys thinking to draw out the answer that I'm looking for. What was the, just by way of review, make sure some of you guys are, are staying with me here. What was the, the central event in John 11? We talked about MacArthur noting that. What was the central event that took place in John 11? Let's make sure you're following. Resurrection. The resurrection of Lazarus, right? So resurrection from the dead, right? That's the central event. So we find the doctrine of the resurrection, and in that event, Christ says, I'm the resurrection and the life, right? So we see the positive dimension of resurrection. When when you are saved, when you're in Christ, your resurrection is to life. Now, what's the negative side? If you don't believe in Jesus, what's your fate? What happens? Yeah, you go, you go to hell, right? You bear God's judgment for your sins in hell. So what was it that Jesus continued to say over and over and over again? Uh, what, was, what was one word? You, you said the word, um, Cash. But what was the word, John three sixteen to 21, that Jesus repeats over and over and over again? Starts with a J. 
judgment. That's right. Right. Judgment. So he, he, he's talking about if you believe in me, you, there will be no judgment. If you don't believe in me, you're judged already. So I believe, question five, what, what insights are we gaining about the doctrine of the resurrection from the passage in John 3? It's that faith in Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, that's the only way to escape your resurrection to judgment if you're left in your sins. You and I as sinners, we are deserving of nothing more than eternal punishment in hell, as Cash said. That, that's our destiny if we do not trust in Jesus Christ. And we find in the book of Revelation, verses 11 to 15 of chapter 20, that both unbelievers and believers, they're going to be resurrected and they're going to have to stand before Jesus Christ on the last day. Unbelievers' resurrection experience is going to lead them to the lake of fire. The believer's resurrection experience is going to lead them to the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus Christ. So against the backdrop of John 3, 16 to 21, we find that the doctrine of the resurrection, there's two sides of that coin. There's the resurrection to life in heaven, resurrection to judgment in hell. The question we all have to consider and that everybody has to consider when confronted with the identity of Christ is, what is our destination going to be? What is our resurrection experience going to lead to? I think that's what MacArthur's going for here when he, when he wants us to, to, to read John 11 against the backdrop of John 3, 16 to 21. Does that make sense? You ever think of it like that? Yeah, I mean, it. you know, we, we lose sight. I, I know I didn't until a few years ago. I, I never realized that even unbelievers, you know, they're going to have a resurrection experience. They are going to have a, a resurrected body. They're going to stand before Jesus, have to give an account for their life. And then they're going to go resurrection body and all to the lake of fire. And that's what they're going to experience forever. Whereas we as believers... We're going to have a resurrection experience. We're going to stand before Christ. He, we're, he's going to give us a, an assessment of our stewardship of the Christian life. We're not going to be condemned to hell. We're not going to be judged by our works. We're going to be evaluated for our stewardship of, of, of our Christian life, be rewarded accordingly to that stewardship, and then our resurrection life will be in heaven. That will be our resurrection experience, new heavens and the new earth. So that's just some food for thought there that I, I thought was interesting. Again, kind of a tough question. My wife and I, when we were going through it, we were like, man, this, this is really, really um, kind of a vague question to consider. But I, I think there's a lot of good there for us to consider. Um, all right, question six. This gets to something that I, I hinted at earlier. I want to see if anybody can recall it. In what ways did Jesus' raising of Lazarus foreshadow future events? So, Lazarus is raised from the dead. What future events are similar to that? We've, we've touched on some tonight, but I, I want to hear some of y'all's thoughts. Yes, that's that's hundred percent true. Absolutely, yeah. So, how how is Lazarus being raised from the dead 
foreshadowing future events. So let's think about this. Who, who gets raised from the dead later on in the Gospel of John? Jesus, right? So Lazarus being raised from the dead, he's, he's using that amongst his uh, first century um, crowd, the audience, the, the people who were in attendance for that event. He's foreshadowing, hey, I'm going to be resurrected from the dead too. And, and, and probably just a week or so from when these events take place. So Lazarus is foreshadowing Christ being raised from the dead. Um, what else? What, what, what other? Um, let's, let's think about what I just said a few moments ago. Literally probably less than three or four minutes ago. Our own resurrection. We're going to be resurrected, right? At some point when Christ returns, all believers and unbelievers are going to be resurrected bodily. Unbelievers resurrected bodily to everlasting judgment. Believers resurrected bodily to everlasting paradise. And then what about spiritually? What did I say earlier about spiritual resurrection? How, how is Lazarus's resurrection from the grave a picture of what happens to us as believers spiritually? What do you all think? How are we spiritually resurrected? Spiritually born again, again, right? Dead in sin, natural state. You and I came into this world enemies of God, completely incapable of pursuing God. Yeah, dead, completely dead. Romans 3, 9 to 18, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Um, I mean, Titus 3, 4, you go to all kinds of passages throughout the... New Testament and the Old Testament. The New Testament verses are just the ones I can think of off the top of my head right now. And we find over and over and over again, man is born into sin. And we need not just to turn over a new leaf. We don't need just a few slight external modifications. We need a complete spiritual resurrection. We need to be born again. We need to be made into a new creature so, um, yeah, so getting a new body, that, that, that is something that we, we do need for glory. Uh, and we do receive a new body um, through the resurrection, through the, through the um, resurrected body we receive um, as believers. We, we will have a new body to reside in, in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, but picture of salvation. Yeah, no, yeah. Lazarus is the picture of salvation. Yep. Yeah, Lazarus didn't get to say, you know, Jesus, let me think about that. I'm going to think about whether or not I want to come out of the grave. No, Jesus summoned him. He said, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus came out. And my friends, when he when he saved you, that's exactly what he did. He said, I'm going to take that spiritually dead person and I'm going to radically transform them, bring them to spiritual life. I'm going to take out their heart of stone. I'm going to put replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And they're going to be made into a new creature. And I'm going to do it all for my glory and for their eternal good. It's exactly what God did to us when we got saved. So as Nick pointed out, it is certainly the perfect picture of salvation. Well, your homework tonight, question seven, I decided to make this uh, something that you can do uh, as an addendum to what we've talked about this evening. Um, read Revelation 21 and 22. If you've never done that before, uh, I trust that it will be extremely encouraging to you. You see a remarkable picture 
of what life in the new heavens and the new earth looks like for the believer. We've talked a lot tonight about the new heavens and the new earth. We've talked a lot about resurrection life. See it for yourselves as described by the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. The guy who wrote uh, the Gospel of John wrote the book of Revelation. Gives us a wonderful account. Not the whole account. We don't have an exhaustive picture of what the, of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. We do have a good account, though, that we can look forward to and be encouraged by as Christians. Well, let me read the paragraph at the bottom of page 73, and then we just have a few more questions. Just two uh, before we're done for the night. Truth for today, bottom of page 73, MacArthur writes the following. Since the fall... There has been a curse on the earth, and that curse has sent the earth and all of its inhabitants careening and spiraling into disasters, tears, sickness, and the grave. Sin was not God's purpose for man. All things in the world were created for the good and blessing of man, but sin corrupted that goodness and blessing and brought a curse instead. In God's time, sin will one day have run its course and be forever destroyed. And then he quotes from Revelation 21, 3 and 4. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Can you, I mean, I can't even imagine a place with no sorrow, no pain, no suffering, no wickedness. Like, we are, we are so accustomed to sin and suffering and hardship that literally our minds can't even conceive of everlasting bliss with God. I, I, I long for that day uh, when, when, we, when we enter into glory. That'll be, if we can use the terminology, that'll truly be the first day of the rest of our lives, the, the rest of our lives in the new heavens and the new earth with the Lord and his holy angels. But I'm just going to be completely honest with y'all. I cannot even come close to wrapping my mind around what that's going to be like. Without having sin, you know, and that alone. Mm-hmm. Totally un- with no infection of sin whatsoever. So, right. Yeah, that's a, that's a, you can sit down and think about You know, John MacArthur, uh, I'll never forget this. He, I think it was in a Q&A at some point, but I remember it stuck with me. He said, you know, when we get to heaven, we're not going to really be able to recognize each other all that well. Because of how we lived in this life, our struggle with sin, um, our, our difficulties and dealing with hardships and trials and and uh, suffering, like we're going to be so different in glory because we're going to be just like Jesus. We're going to be without sin. We're going to worship God as we've been created to worship God. We're going to fellowship and commune with one another as we've been created to do so. I mean, like, like Nick just got done saying, I mean, you could sit down and think about that for the rest of your life and it won't even come close to what the reality would be like in glory. But with that in mind, uh, last page of chapter slash section 7 in our workbook, page 74, the reflecting on the text section. Reflecting on the text. Question 8. 
Clearly, Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, enjoyed an intimate friendship with Jesus. What do you think is the secret to that kind of relationship with Christ? So, let's make this very practical. How do you and I develop an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? We don't see Jesus. Um, I I trust that none of you have heard Jesus speak audibly to you. um, So we don't hear him talking audibly as as I speak audibly to you tonight. Um, So we can't see him. We can't touch him. We can't hear him audibly. Um, He he hasn't come back for nearly 2,000 years. Um, How do we get close to somebody like that? There you go. No, that's that's completely right. Um, any other thoughts? So in case you didn't hear Nick, he said that first and foremost, you've got to know him, and the only way you can know him is through his word. Yes, Martina. I have that. that Jesus references Lazarus as, as our friend, highlights the disciples' responsibility as friends, and certainly will motivate them to accompany him. Jesus has been the ultimate friend. He gave his life in love. Hmm. No, that's, that's great thoughts. I, I appreciate that. Um, so here's, here's what I wrote down, just my two cents thinking about this. Because this, guys, like, this is a very important question. Because practically, let's say that your friend or your family member or your coworker, they say, you know, like I really want to believe in that Jesus stuff and that Christianity stuff like you do. But let's just face it. I mean... How do, you, how do you really know God? I mean, how do you really have a relationship with a God you can't see, you can't touch, you can't hear him audibly speak to you? Like when you pray and when you go to church and you do all these things, like, like how does that make a difference? Well, here's what I, here's what I thought in, in trying to answer that charge. And I've, I've heard that challenge before. Um, and and I'll, I'm going to reiterate uh, what Nick said as well about studying the word. But think about this. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, they spent time with Jesus, right? Like, let's just think practically, personally, in our lives. If you know somebody well, you spend time with them. You talk to them. You listen to them. You carve out time in your life, in your day-to-day, week-to-week schedule. You carve out time to pour into them and to allow them to pour into you. That's what Lazarus, Mary, and Martha did with Jesus. And ever since Jesus ascended into heaven, that's what his people must do to cultivate an intimate relationship with him. Here's what what it comes down to, my friends, I believe. Um, In God's grace, he's made it simple. The the question is, are we going to be faithful in putting these practices into uh, uh, putting these practices in our lives ourselves, are we going to be willing to do it? First and foremost, Nick said it uh, to start. You got to be in the Word, right? Like Jesus doesn't speak audibly today. Um, he, he might in extraordinary circumstances. I'm not going to say he can't do that, but ordinarily, likely for you and me, you will never hear Jesus speak to you audibly in this life. It's just not going to happen. Okay. Uh, but he's spoken once and for all in Scripture. Listen to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Such a 
profound passage. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, he spoke through the prophets and through the signs that they uh, performed, um, through all the, the events and stories we read of in the Old Testament. God did all these remarkable works and wonders to engage with his people. Notice what the writer of the Hebrews says in verse 2. In these last days, in the time period between Christ ascending into heaven and him coming back to earth, he's spoken to us in his son. Where do you go to hear Jesus speak to you? Where do you go to hear God speak to you in the last days? You go to the source that bears witness to the son. You go to the word of God. You want to hear from God? You want to hear from Jesus? He's given you a book that will not change. It will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. The word of God will never pass away. It's unchanging. It's eternal. It is 100% true in everything that it teaches. You have something just as good, if not better, than Jesus actually being here with you in person and speaking to you. Listen to what Peter says. 2 Peter 1, 19 and following. We have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What's Peter saying? He's saying, listen, I was there on the Mount of Transfiguration with James and John. I saw Jesus glorified and I saw, um, I saw uh, Moses. I'm drawing a blank on who the other one was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Bear with me. This is embarrassing because I should know this off the top of my head. So it's okay. Time out here. We're gonna look Matthew seven Matthew seventeen. Elijah and Moses and Elijah. That's it. Matthew seventeen four. Just had to pull it up. Hey, when in doubt, my friends, hey, we're human. You draw a blank, go script, go look to Scripture. You'll find the answer you're looking for. So J- Peter's saying, I saw Elijah. I saw Moses. I was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. But guess what? People he's writing to in the first century and to us by extension, we've got the Word of God. We have the prophetic Word made more sure. The Word of God. That's what we need to know God and to have an intimate relationship with him. Second, so, so if scripture is God pouring into us, prayer is us pouring back in to God. Paul Washer has said it best. You can have all the head knowledge in the world. You can have hours and hours of studying every single day. But if you never pray... If you never get alone with God and just lay your heart bare and meditate on what you've studied about in Scripture and adore God for who He is and what He's done for you, you're you're just going to have a dry academic head knowledge 
about God. You've got to have an intimate desire, a longing to be with God. Find a place. It could be in your house. It could be outside in your yard, on the way to work, in the car, anywhere. Find your place. For me, it's driving to the gym. I I have a 25-minute drive there and back. I try to spend at least one of those every day in prayer and thinking about God's character, thinking about what he's done for me, praising him for what he's done in my life, making requests known to him for other people in my life or for myself, right? Like, I, I want to grow not just in my head knowledge, but in my heart affections for God. And prayer is how we do that. And then lastly, um, and this is what we're doing tonight, gather with God's people. Not just on Sunday morning. Find time in your week to be a part of a Bible study, to, to, to have coffee or lunch or dinner with another believer, to encourage them in their faith, to hear about their struggles, to give them encouragement and counsel as you can, uh, to be encouraged from them. Hebrews 10, 23, 25 talks about not forsaking gathering together with other believers, but to encourage one another to love and good deeds. What we're doing tonight is what helps us be motivated to grow in intimacy with God. So this is important. What we're doing here tonight, guys, this is important. Just as important as Bible study and prayer. It's being with God's people. Just like Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were with Christ's disciples in Christ during the first century. To close, um, question nine. I just want to hear a few thoughts on this, and then I'll pray to close this out. What does Jesus being the resurrection and the life mean to you? How, how does that truth change the way you view death, the way you view life, the way you view your place in the world? How is it impacted by the truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Yeah. If there's no resurrection, Jesus just died like everyone else. There's nothing spectacular about him. Um, Frankly, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we're wasting our time if there is no resurrection from the dead. We're of all men most to be pitied. Everything I just told you about having a close relationship with God, if Jesus didn't get raised from the dead, it's all hogwash. We really are wasting our time reading this ancient book, praying. And if we're going to gather together, we can at least do something more fun, right, than an hour and a half of Bible study if if there is no resurrection, right? I mean, surely we can all agree to that. So, Martina, you're absolutely right. No resurrection, it's it's all pointless. It's all a waste of time. There's no hope. Any other thoughts? How does Jesus being the resurrection and the life impact you? I'll share mine. Um, you know, I wanted growing up, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. By God's grace, I was able to play in college and have some success playing. Um, but Jesus being the resurrection and the life, that not only led to my salvation, uh, me trusting in him as the resurrection and the life, me trusting him as the way, the truth, and the life, me trusting that he's the only way to have forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God. That changed my life, but every desire I ever had to play baseball 
and to, and to build my life around a sport, something that I did for 15, 16 years of my life. Um, by the time I turned 20, the fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life completely changed the course of how I des- decided to spend my adult life. Instead of playing baseball after injuring my elbow, getting Tommy John and trying to make a run at professional baseball, instead of going into coaching, which was what I planned on doing after I got done playing all throughout my childhood and adolescence, instead of all those things, I decided because of a divine conviction and because of the reality that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, I decided to spend my life as long as I have life to do so proclaiming Christ and that through faith in him, you can have forgiveness of sin, you can have satisfaction for your soul, you can have purpose, and you can have hope in this life and in the life to come as an adopted son or daughter in Christ. That fact of Jesus being the resurrection and the life, it changed not just me and in, in, in allowing me to be a Christian. I mean, praise God for that. That would have been enough. But it has set me on a completely different trajectory, one that I would have never imagined as a young man. So I praise God for that. And just be, you know, most of you guys in here, other than Nick, um, maybe, maybe some of you kids may get called to ministry. Most of you guys aren't called to ministry, and that's fine. Praise God. But God has a specific purpose for your life that only you can fulfill. He's gifted you in certain ways. He's placed certain people around you. He's wired your personality in such a way to appeal to different people in life that others wouldn't be able to because they're just not wired the way that you are. God has a unique and specific purpose for your life. And the fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that fact should motivate you to make the most of your calling, your giftedness, and everything that God's given you. You should be motivated to use all of that to glorify him and point others to him so that they might know him and enjoy him as the resurrection and the life. So that's my closing thought. Um, I hope that this was a a thought-provoking lesson for you tonight. I I certainly enjoyed reading the text and reflecting on it this week and getting to bounce some ideas off of you tonight. Let me pray for us, um, and and, uh, you guys will be dismissed, or you guys can stay in fellowship as long as possible. I'll be outside uh, keeping some of these young kids humble on the basketball court. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, as we read in 1 Peter 1, though we do not see you, though we do not see Christ, though we do not see the Holy Spirit, we love you. We love the Son, Jesus Christ. We love the Holy Spirit. And it is only because that you loved us first that we have any genuine heartfelt love for you it is only because of your sovereign grace and mercy that we were resurrected from spiritual deadness to spiritual life that our hearts of stone were replaced with hearts of flesh that we can be forgiven of our sins and that we can cry out to you abba father though we were once your enemies christ died for us and has made us adopted sons and daughters in him father we celebrate that tonight We rejoice in knowing that your son, Jesus Christ, is the resurrection and the life. He is the one name given under heaven whereby 
men can be saved. He is the one mediator between God and man. He is the bread of life. He is the door. He is the good shepherd. He is the light of the world. He is the true vine. For the believer, he is all in all. Father, I pray every person in here tonight knows you through faith in him, that the triune God would be the supreme delight in all of our hearts, that we would just desire more than anything else to to know you through your word, to study it, to reflect on it. If we have questions about it, to seek clarity, that it would not just be a chore, Father, or a burden, but that it would be a joy to study your word on a regular basis. And Father, not just to study and grow in head knowledge, but Father, that it would be a delight just to pour our hearts to you, Father, to to think about your character, to get alone with you, to reflect on your faithfulness to us all the days of our life, even as unbelievers, to reflect on your common grace and mercies that you shed abroad, that every good and perfect gift comes from you above, the Father of lights, in whom there is no shifting of shadow. Father, help us to worship you with greater reverence and greater adoration as we leave here tonight, as we go back into where you've called us this week, our jobs, our families, our schools, our extracurricular activities. May we make much of you, your Son, and your Holy Spirit through the words we say, through the conduct that we model before others, and through how we talk about you as we have opportunities to share you before a watching world. Father, I pray that you would grant safe travel to every person around this table tonight. I pray for all the unspoken requests and concerns that are currently embedded in the minds of of those here. Father, we don't know what each of us is going through or, or what burdens we have, but we know that you do. And we know that your word tells us that we can cast all of our anxieties, all of our concerns, all of our requests before you because you care for us. And your son, Jesus, makes intercessions for us at your right hand. So I pray, Father, that that would be an encouragement to us to know that you hear our prayers, you know our concerns even more than we ourselves know them. And just like you clothe the lilies of the field, just like you feed the sparrows of the sky, so also will you take care of every temporal and spiritual need that we could ever have. May we rest in that truth as we leave here tonight. And Father, may our hearts continue to be prepared to reassemble on the Lord's Day this week to worship you in spirit and in truth and to have another opportunity to encourage one another in love and good deeds. We love you, God, and we give you thanks for this time together tonight, and we pray all of this in Christ's name.